You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. Beth Osborne is the director of Transportation America, which is Smart Growth America's transportation arm. They have just come out with a report, Dangerous by Design. It's the 2021 version of what has become an annual report. Beth has agreed to come on the podcast, and I, I welcome her. Beth, thanks for taking the time to be here with us. Thanks for having me. I've been listening to all your episodes. It's fun to now be the subject. This is long overdue and it's been, uh, I'm very grateful that you have come on finally. My fault that you haven't up to this point, but (laughs) this report is, let me just say, when I read it, I am feeling and sensing your frustration and having read this report for multiple years now, I mean, I think this is the 10th one you put out. There is a sense here that, you know, I won't swear on my podcast, but people are fed up. They're ticked off. They're like, what the hell is going on here? Can you give some voice to that right off the top? Oh, yeah. It's almost impossible to hide at this point. You know, uh, earlier in the year, we normally release this in January of the year, but the data were released so late last year that we had to hold off and we wanted to preview it in early February. And we decided on a Groundhog Day theme because how many times do we have to say the same thing and and not change anybody's mind? I, I think the sense of the great frustration for me is how everyone says the same pithy, whiny thing about safety's our top priority. And then they refuse to make the decisions or the choices that actually would prove that what they're saying is true. What they mean is, I wish we could get safe results without having to do anything different or in any way inconvenience the driver who, you know, just can't sacrifice 20 extra seconds to save human life. And it's, it's so grotesque. It's so ugly. It's so frustrating because, you know, I think my predecessor who handled this report, Emiko Atherton would say is we know how to do this. We've known how to do this for, for decades. We have just chosen not to. And then we pretend to be appalled by the loss of life. At some point, you have to accept that you're fine with it because the inconvenience that you feel you will cause, because you won't actually cause any, is more of a concern to you than saving people. Right. I think that is the profound, astounding thing. Can you walk us a little bit through kind of an overview of the statistics? Because I feel like from a public health standpoint, if we look at different areas of we're going through this pandemic. So obviously we're all queued in on public health, but it seems like in every other area of society, there is a sense when people are dying that we should work to reduce this. And and I think whether it's cancer, whether it's heart disease, to me, it, it feels like we're at least making progress and there is a plan to kind of improve. But when it comes to pedestrian safety, when it comes to traffic, what's going on? We're going in the opposite direction, right? That's that's exactly right. You know, a lot of the advancements we've made in protecting people has come from regulations we've put in place on cars. We've made the people in the car 
more comfortable. We've made the people outside of the car less safe. So basically we've created a cocoon strong enough to protect human life within the car in spite of the, the dangers that we continue to allow. And without you know 2000 pounds of metal around you, you just don't have much of a chance. First off, I do need to point out that the data we are relying on is 2019 data because it takes so long for the USDOT to scrub the data and connect it to location information and demographic information and things like that. I will get into 2020, what we know so far, but this is, this is between 2010 and 2019, 53,435 people were struck and killed while walking in the United States. And that's about 14 people per day on average. And that number, if you look at through our, our history of tracking this, that number's grown 45% over the last set of, uh, of 10 years. So we're just, we're going in the wrong direction. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that we have focused so much on improving speeds, allowing cars to go faster. And I think that leads really well into the 2020 data because without traffic in 2020 due to the pandemic and the shutdown, we saw conditions get worse. We actually saw uh, the highest increase in the fatality rate in over 90 years. The National Safety Council estimates a 24% spike in all traffic fatalities in 2020. And that is while traffic was down 13%. So for years, people have said that fatalities follow traffic levels. And I think what they meant is when there were minor changes, but still traffic congestion to slow drivers down. Yeah, it did basically track that. But as soon as traffic fell low enough to remove all of the cues that a driver should slow down, because our roads are built saying you should just go as fast as you possibly can. They're wide, they're straight, there's no one in your way. That's what they did. And crashes, mistakes are more frequent. It's hard to have the same scope of vision. And when the mistake happens, it's harder to fix it in time and crashes are more deadly. So the trend that we have seen for decades really was laid bare in 2020 when, you know, the, our, our greatest safety intervention, traffic congestion, was removed. Right. I don't know if you saw the, I think it was the National Transportation Safety Board put out a report or made some statement at the end of the year calling on drivers to stop driving drunk and stop speeding because, you know, they, for some reason correlated because if people would get in these crashes, people would die and they would check the box afterwards that said, well, this person was drinking and this person was speeding as if somehow the pandemic gave us this epidemic of people who drove drunk. What actually do you think happened or what actually should be the, the lesson here? Did we all of a sudden turn into a nation of alcoholics or did something else go on? Well, I think there probably are a lot of things. And my husband and I joke that uh, people are going to write, you know, entire dissertations on just one month from last year. So I'll leave it to the historians to cover everything that happened. But there may have been higher drunk driving rates. There may have been people that I remember seeing cases of speeding where people were going over 100 miles per hour, things like yeah. that. But 
we have always seen that in off-peak hours, that's when the crashes happen. We never saw big numbers of people being struck and killed when you're in standstill traffic. That's not how it works. Right. You know, it was in those off-peak hours when the road is wide. And, and you know, even me as a driver, I, I, I went down, we rented a house in the woods because we just wanted to escape and have a change of scenery in, in these crazy times. And I was going down a Virginia roadway, a highway, and the speed limit changed five times on my trip. And the design changed zero times. Right. You know, as a driver, I kept catching myself breaking the speed limit because the cues weren't changing. It was still a highway design, but all of a sudden the speed limit was 35. There's nothing to indicate to me other than a random sign every quarter of mile that I was supposed to do something different. So at some point we have to understand you know, that, and those of us that love design, that obsess over design issues and how it really impacts us all the time without our even thinking, recognize that human beings respond to all the cues being given to them. And all the cues being given to them are to go fast. We are taking 1950s design standards put in place to help people figure out where to lay out the national highway system and the interstate system. And we are applying them to roadways that go through our communities. And we wonder why that creates a problem. I mean, it's what you always say on Strodes and I I steal your futon example (laughs) all the time. We have decided that you can both have development with lots of conflict points and design for speed. What could go wrong? And and I think the deal is we constantly see what could go wrong. And again, normally there are portions of the day where traffic slows down because there are too many people who have to drive by themselves over long distances. And so we flood the roads and it slows. The fact of the matter is last year we had very little of that time. So why wouldn't we see the crashes that we've always seen in off-peak hours all day long? It was 100% predictable but a lot of people were telling themselves a lie about the impact design has and comforting themselves that there was nothing that departments of transportation could do. And so they were surprised, but we were not. I want to create a a circle here. And so I'm going to ask you a question about speed and the relationship between speed and death. I think it's obvious to many of us that when we design for high speeds, people die Can you hone in on that a little bit and give it a little bit more depth than just that simplicity? Yes. There's a bunch of things. Uh, And actually, the National Association of City Transportation Officials has a really nice little graphic that shows all the different ways speed impacts safety. One of the things that they point out is that your scope of vision shrinks as you go faster. When you're going slowly, you can see somewhat in your peripheral quickly enough to be able to respond to a potential problem or conflict. And as you grow faster, that peripheral vision shrinks and you can see less and less, which is why when you get to the interstates, we cut off any ability for people to cross or pop out of a driveway because we know that you can really only see the lanes in front of you. The other thing is your response time. It's the same time. It's just you're covering much more ground in that period of time. So even if you do see something and respond, you're going to cover a lot more ground and be more likely to hit something or or just less likely to be able to avoid it. Your braking time is slower. 
So it just takes longer to stop something that weighs thousands of pounds when you're going faster. That's just physics and momentum. And then the human body can absorb a certain amount of weight crashing into it at certain speeds, but it just loses its ability to do so as people go faster and faster. So if you're going 20 miles per hour in a car and you strike a person, most of the people are going to survive that crash unbelievably. It's astounding, right? It it really is shocking how many people can survive that. And it just shows uh, the resilience of of humans in, in the face of pretty dangerous conditions. But when you get to 30 miles per hour, it's about half and half. Right. And when you get to 40 miles per hour, most everyone's going to die. So what we consider as drivers to be small changes in speed have huge impacts on the fate of someone who you might strike. Let's put that as a placeholder because I want to come back to it. Let me ask you why speed is is this priority? Understanding this, which everything you've said is is incredibly logical and makes a lot of sense to everybody. Why are we building things for speed? Why, why is speed a value that we've applied to our systems in terms of, of traffic? I actually think it's a lot of issues that have accreted over time. I think a lot of it is our program has grown out of the interstate highway program mm-hmm. and some very smart engineers were asked to do something that we'd never done in the history of the country before, figure out how to design an interstate system. My guess is they said, well, we'll write some ideas down on paper, but obviously we're going to test this and learn from it and grow. They didn't expect that. No, in fact, we will etch it in stone and call it biblical and never allow anyone to question it. And then we started taking those designs because the folks who built that highway system, mostly state DOTs, we added to their responsibility. We added roads that were within their purview. And so they took those designs and they applied it in a one size fits all manner to all roads. So now it's applying to those arterials, particularly the suburban arterials built, you know, since the creation of the federal transportation program at a time where there might not have been a lot of development around it. But even today, it's become so much a part of the way we think. It is the only standard applied to any road of any size. Maybe some local neighborhood roads can escape the standards, but pretty much everything else can't. And then the way we built our communities on top of it has placed people far apart from each other and far apart from everything they need and all the things they need far apart from each other. So there's a recognition that all of our trips are inconvenient because they're all far apart from each other. So the way we try to make it up to our customer is let them go real fast. We, we never think, well, maybe we could put the things they need closer together or closer to them. That would be crazy. Instead, we'll just let them drive super duper fast to cover a large amount of territory in a short period of time. Of course, when you have that available to everybody and they're all going in different directions, you create a big cluster and and they don't move fast at all throughout most of the day. And you don't really add convenience. That same roadway continues to encourage the development to spread because who's going to build a a restaurant with cafe seating on the side of a roadway that people drive by at 55 miles per hour? Nobody. You then start setting things back across, you know, vast fields of parking and, and you make those distances even further. And then the pressure to speed things up becomes even bigger. So we've made a bunch of different decisions not generally intended 
to create a dangerous situation. Danger was more the side effect. And unfortunately it's one that we seem pretty tolerant of because we don't want to touch any of the other issues which have become sacrosanct. Right. It feels like there's a lot of people working on this in different ways. I don't want to throw shade on them because I, I think that their intentions are probably good, but I have long been frustrated with the public awareness campaigns Ugh. and, you know, yes. please drive safely or please wear bright colors if you're out walking, you know, so you're more visible. There are people who, okay, I, I understand, but, but say that the solution here is more enforcement. We should have a red light cameras everywhere or police on every corner. Uh, we should be pulling anyone who goes a mile over the speed limit. It's the law for crying out loud. Maybe there's some validity there, but why do they feel inadequate and, and why are they inadequate? You know, your report is titled dangerous by design. Can you talk a little bit about the design aspect of this and, and how part of the solution has to be designed? I'm going to start with where you started and go Please. into the design. You're at, it, it drives me nuts as well that we focus so much on blaming humans. Yeah, the humans are flawed. Let's fix them. Yes. The, the system um, is perfect. But you know, what's <laughs> funny is we're discovering now as we're trying to deploy AVs that our design is just as confusing to the computer. Thank and you. I don't know, maybe if we built in a way that a computer could interpret, maybe humans could interpret it the way we wanted them to interpret it as well. Our design is set up to confuse the driver and then blame them when they make an obvious mistake. One of the things I, I hope we got across in this report that I'm focusing more on is how anti-driver an auto-centric system is. If you just look at the, the gigantic SUVs that we have where drivers can't see kids in front of their car, it's still going to be their fault when they run them over. So first, we make it impossible for you to see what's in front of you, and then we blame you for your reckless behavior when you run over things you can't see. And we call those automobiles safe and they pass muster. It's the same thing with the design of our roadways. You think about those slip lanes that allow you to turn right without going through the intersection or, or have to stop at the light. And you know our, our engineering standards just approve so strongly of it because you don't have delay with people sitting behind those who are trying to turn right if they have to wait at the intersection. But what you tell the driver when they're turning is, no need to slow down, fella. You're just cruise on through. But if there's someone in the crosswalk, you better stop. So don't slow down, but stop on a dime. And then when there is a problem, when the driver can't do both at the same time, it's the driver's fault. But our design has actually purposefully tricked them. I find that to be unconscionable. I can't believe that that design is permitted in any design book to say, literally the opposite thing to the driver at the same time. And then we have these educational campaigns, you know, stop getting confused by our confusing design, fix yourselves and be better. I mean, I certainly think we should encourage people to act safely, but we should also make behaving safely the easiest thing to do. And right now we make people second guess what the design is telling them to do and behave uncomfortably in order to be safe. I took a defensive driving course when I first started driving. And one thing they said is the safest thing to do is to drive the speed around you, no matter what the speed limit says. 
So when we design for 55 miles per hour and then market 35, again, you've set the driver up in a conundrum that is totally unfair. And yes, you could move to enforcement, but that's a speed trap. That is, I'm going to make you speed. I'm going to trick you into speeding. And then I'm going to charge you for doing what I designed the road to tell you to do. That is not an appropriate act by government to trick their, the people who put them in office into misbehaving so you can charge them. And this notion of, well, it's human error is just a great way to get out of responsibility for your role. It's just a perfect uh, situation for them. They say, uh, well, you know, you can't control those foolish drivers. They're always speeding out there and you never notice how they don't speed if the design changes. React to this, if you would. I do feel like there's a certain, like, if we treated streets like product safety people would, it's a little bit like saying, you know, that crib that keeps killing kids is because the parents make mistakes. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, if you put your kid in the crib, in the dangerous crib properly, it'd be fine. Right. You know, you're right. We absolutely, but we don't do this in any area of transportation. We don't, we don't do trip generation modeling and then go back in five years and say, were we right? Oh, we were wrong. We should fix the model. No, we model what we want. We get it to say whatever we want. We never check it. And then we demand more money when things don't work. It's great. And this, this whole notion of enforcement, whether it is uh, automatic enforcement, which I think there's a, a role for. Agreed. Uh, yep. Or police enforcement. If you look back at the history, the police did not want to have anything to do with traffic enforcement. They, you know, in the early days of the car, they consider that to be far beneath them and not police work. And they were adamantly opposed to being a part of this. It wasn't until bootleggers started using their cars to move alcohol during prohibition that they started wanting to pull cars over. And then when we fixed that problem, they stuck with it. But it's, it's not a great use of police time. And wouldn't it be great if instead of using our police that way or enforcing against bad behavior, we just made bad, bad behavior really hard to do and uncomfortable so that the design was self-enforcing. Yeah. It's so interesting to me how we seem very eager to blame the driver. The analogy that I've kind of used in my head is that, you know, I have this dog and he's when we got him, he was supposed to be a little dog and he's now a hundred pounds. <laughs> it was a bad choice, but he's a sweetheart. He's a, he's a really good dog. But my wife left a thing of meatballs out on the counter once and his head is as high as the counter. And she left the room and came back five minutes later and the meatballs are all gone. And he's sitting there going, Hey, I'm, Hey everybody. It's just me. I'm, <laughs> I'm a happy oh, no. dog. Right. <laughs> and, and it's kind of like, you know, you can say, well, dang it, dog, you know, you should have the self-discipline and awareness to know because we never feed you off the counter. We never give you food on the counter. You're not allowed to do this. Like, this is not okay. Or you can just recognize that like the very nature of a dog is to eat raw meat when it's sitting out there at their head level and recognize that when you leave the room, you should put it in the fridge or do, you know, like do something like that's not a good thing. The response I get is, well, like humans are not dogs. We're capable of thinking. We're capable of doing this. We're capable of focusing when we drive. And if the speed limit says 30, we'll drive 30. And biology and psychology has taught us that for the most part, we're closer to dogs than we maybe want to believe in terms of how we react to the world around us. How would you think about that? 
I think we need to understand the way the human mind works. And there are two kinds of decision-making strategies we use. One is a very high-level decision. You know, you're trying to figure out a choice at work or who to hire or, you know, these big decisions we make in the day, and they burn a lot of sugar. And the human brain can't make those decisions all day long. In fact, that's the vast minority of the decisions they make. And you're exhausted after a day of tons of those decisions. If we made that level of decision-making as we drive, short trips would exhaust us and we'd need naps. We make that automatic decision like you do when you're walking along the road. You don't have to think about putting each foot in front of each other and maybe picking your foot up a little bit more to step up on the curb or to walk to the right to get around the person coming. These are just decisions your brain knows how to make. And when we're driving, there's a million decisions like that we're making all the time. And when the lane is wide and the buildings are set back and the road is wide and it's straight and you see a, you know, a straightaway for miles, a speedway for miles, you take all that information and your brain saves you from losing all capacity to function in a short period of time by incorporating that into decisions. And there's actually a, a good amount of science behind that now. But the other thing is, how do you make a decision when, a proper decision, when you're going at 40 miles per hour and the roadway tells you to do two opposite things at the same time? It's confusing. And you can't stop the car right there and, and muse over it. Well, let's see. Right. There are two different things I could do here. Everyone just stop for a while. I'm going to consider my options. That's not, you're supposed to react on the spot instinctually to things that are so confusing that the, the computers and the AVs aren't figuring it out. I think we've got to recognize that there's a way to make that easy to do when you narrow the roads a little bit. It's in an area where there's development, where there are there's traffic crossing your way, where there are going to be driveways, where there might be people. The speeds just come down because it gives you the chance to make those decisions. And it makes clear that you need to be looking out for conflict. And if you want the speeds to be high, don't put in the conflicts. Don't put in the cross streets. Don't put in the driveways. Don't put in the development. We do that beautifully on limited access highways. But if you're not going to build a limited access highway, there should just be an expectation. Everything should slow down. And people will naturally drive slower if you narrow the lanes, if you have trees on the side of the road, if the blocks are short, if it's clear you're going to have to stop with some regularity, uh, you know, if there are people about and if this, you don't have to instruct people, you don't have to enforce them. For the most part, everyone does it. Yeah. We talked about the pandemic and how in a very predictable way, but contrary maybe to what the industry orthodoxy would suggest, death went up and collisions went up. And even though people were driving less, we saw more fatalities. There were some places though in the pandemic that went in the opposite direction. You do a great job in the report of highlighting Oakland. I think Oakland as a good case study for what a lot of cities were doing to say, um, we're going to get out here and for many different inspiration reasons, provide more space for people to social distance or to be more active or to get outside. But it did have the, the effect of, in places, making streets a lot safer. Can you talk about what they did in Oakland and why maybe this is a model that should outlive the pandemic? 
Yeah, you know, Oakland got a lot of attention, but there were a bunch of cities that did it. You know, Burlington, Vermont, I think, shut down about 25% of their roadways. I think, uh, I want I don't want to give credit to the wrong place, but I'm pretty sure Louisville, Kentucky was one of those that shut down a bunch of their we roads. We saw a lot of them coming through, yeah. Yeah, and for all the reasons you said, and, and you're right, it just set up a different expectation as you went through. The driver knew, they all of a sudden, if you were driving through to get to your home because the road was basically closed, you knew that was a slow street. That was a place where kids could be in the roadway. And you naturally, there were all the indications that you were going to creep along here. This was not a, a place to speed through. And what was interesting is how quickly some of these were put in place and how little money had to be spent to give those indications. Sometimes it was just signs. Sometimes it was delineators or bollards or things that could be put in place with, with some speed and at low expense. Sometimes it was paint. People naturally followed the indications they were given when they were clear. They avoided the streets where they weren't supposed to be on, uh, didn't make the world end. And when they were sharing the space, they made appropriate decisions. They went super slow in order to make eye contact with people in and out of the car to maneuver the space. We see that all over the place. Here in Washington, D.C., uh, right down by the waterfront, they built a shared roadway for everybody. Traffic moves at 10 miles per hour. There aren't problems there because everyone's looking each other in the eye and figuring out how to share the space. Horrible things like COVID-19 and this pandemic forces us to be more creative and try different things. And it gives us a chance to learn from it in a way that we never would have under any other circumstances. We're recognizing that the roadway is some of our greatest public space, particularly in low-income and minority areas. It can be reallocated for, for people to be outside, to be healthy, to be with their community. It can be reallocated to make space for businesses to have more, more seating you know, on the, the public dime, uh, have all of a sudden more tabletops in your small restaurant. People are discovering that even when it gets chilly outside, there's still ways to eat outside and enjoy yourself. And I, I do hope that we can learn from that. We put out a report recently called COVID and the Curb that looked at a whole bunch of communities and how they reallocated the space at the curb. Sometimes it was for people to move around. Sometimes it was for retail or restaurant space. Sometimes it was for pick up and drop off. But it turned out everybody found more efficient ways to use it than we've used it before. I want to ask you about the policy response here. This is one of the areas where, you know, your expertise really shines through. And I think you guys are, of course, the leaders in the country of policy reform. Can you talk a little bit about people who want to see these changes happen? What we should be looking at in terms of, I mean, you're in, you're in Washington, D.C. There's uh, bills going through Congress all the time. There's going to be a transportation authorization this year. What is the role of Congress and what do you think that the federal government can do to, to nudge this along in a different direction? Yeah. And, you know, I've really been persuaded by a lot of your writing that just dumping money out there without any parameters, without any thought, just encourages a lot of, of short-term thinking. And I feel like I have been influenced by your, your <laughs> thoughts and your writing too, because for me, I feel like the reaction has been, it's mindless to just pour money into this and kind of reject it wholly. And, and I think you have taught me to a degree that there are, there, there are Zen points where we can push that will have a major impact. So I appreciate how you approach that. 
Well, you know, I grew up in in one of the suburbs you talk about that went through exactly the experience of, you know, a ton of money put into big wide roadways and homes spread out from each other, though, you know, this is the 1960s, so nothing like you see today. And it's not able to maintain itself and everything's falling apart. And, you know, it's just going through that that life cycle. So you're right. And it's exactly like you said, maintenance maintenance is harder to fund. It's expected to be on the local. We'll build everything for you for you, and you'll figure it out. And it never works out that way. And we don't, we don't account for it in the right way. Uh, you know, uh, all of your stuff about our accounting and Gatsby and all that sort of thing is absolutely true. The feds can come in and give people the excuse they need to be responsible. We're kind of used to the feds being the bad guys, right? Making you do those icky things that no one likes. But, uh, you know, my friends over at Taxpayers for Common Sense often say that maintenance in particular, it's like flossing your teeth. Not only is it not sexy, it's it's a real pain. You know, we're going to shut down this road you depend on or slow it down to an extraordinary amount for months, maybe a year. And at the end of the day, you're going to have what you had before. Well, that sucks. Um, (laughs) That's not fun. Right. Oh, you know, and what if, what do the reporters do? You know, they talk for months about the inconvenience you've created for folks. I've never done the study, but I would love to see the difference in negative uh, press from a bridge falling down versus doing maintenance. Yeah. I bet it's pretty on point or pretty on par. Yes. Um, it's, it, you know, it's just really hard to do, but the feds can say, but you have to. And if you don't, we won't send you the money, you know, at that big 30,000 foot level, we can make those policy pronouncements from DC and everyone can agree it's right. And then when that choice gets very hard at the local level, you can fall back on that policy pronouncement and say, my hands are tied. I've got to do what's right, whether it's popular or not. And that's the role I really do want to see the feds play is to, to hold our feet to the fire, to set some parameters, to say that you've got to build in a way that you know is sustainable from a financial perspective. I'd like to see it from a environmental perspective too. But at the very least, when you're using the taxpayer's dollars, you don't spend money in a way that you know is gonna bankrupt them later, even though you might not personally be in office by then. We're gonna account for it, we're gonna put all that information forward and we're gonna explain it. And so that's one thing, I really think the fix it first sort of agenda is super important. And for years I've been told that no one would go for it, that it's too controversial. And then we got our friends, uh, Mike Gallagher and, and Chewy Garcia to offer a very strict fix it first amendment in house committee. And it passed by unanimous consent. Cause it turns out it's really hard to argue that people should be able to show that they can afford to maintain the thing they're building right. on a bipartisan basis. It turns out to be quite popular. The one thing I've been surprised about, and maybe I shouldn't be, maybe I'm just cynical and, and and too divorced from it. But I have been pleasantly surprised at the bipartisan response to calls for reform. You mentioned Representative Mike Gallagher. We had him and I he's a Republican it. and we had, yeah, Jake Auchincloss, a Democrat from two like very different parts of the country with very different kind of priorities, places that we're kind of told in the popular culture are so different, they can't even relate to each other. Yet, I don't know. We seem to have some common. Is this a place where we can have some common ground agreement that kind of defies the current partisan zeitgeist in a sense? 
I'm going to have good news and bad news. Give, give me both. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes, we can absolutely we do have bipartisan support for reform. Transportation is bipartisan. The status quo is bipartisan and the call for reform is bipartisan. Yes. So um, no one should feel comfortable when they talk with their uh, elected representatives and, and they give you good top line uh, comments. You've really got to look at what they're truly supporting. And if all they're talking about is more funding for the program and not actually fixing the problems like the lack of safety, like the maintenance backlog, like the fact that uh, if you don't have enough money for a car, you're just not going to be able to access economic opportunity and essential services, then it's just words. And so we hear this all the time. I just saw an ARPA column, I think it was in the Washington Post saying, look at all of these desperate needs to replace crumbling roads and bridges, put more money into the programs that we have now that we will not use to replace those crumbling roads and bridges, we'll just build new things. And by the way, I've got a whole list of fun new things to build too. This has been the issue. People get up and they say, we've got to make our roads safer. We've got to make it easier to get to work and get home to your kids. And we, you know, we've got to improve the uh, environment. We've got to do this and that. Give us money for the programs that have done none of those things. And there's just bipartisan support behind that. But the good news is there's really strong bipartisan support for making changes as well. And so rather than be afraid of that, we should go you know, full steam ahead into working with those folks that recognize what we have isn't working and we can do better. You talk in the report about needing more data. I find that very interesting because again, it's another not glamorous thing, Uh, but when it comes to, you know, disability and people with disabilities using transportation systems, when it comes to just you know, accident reporting or crash reporting and how we're compiling these statistics, Walk us through a little bit what that unglamorous part is and why it's important. Yeah, it's really hard to fix things you don't measure. And I will say that the folks that work uh, the system where all of the the crash data is collected and and perfected, they have a, a really hard job. They are dealing with data collected in different ways in thousands of jurisdictions and trying to put it together in a way that we can compare across the nation. It is really tricky. The documents that people have to fill out are already pretty confusing and and pretty long, but there's very important information we still don't have. And one is about people with disabilities or people using uh, mobility assistive devices. Uh, A lot of times they're grouped in with things that are considered toys like scooters. Look, uh, scooters have become a very uh, serious way of getting around. So I don't mean to poo-poo the scooter. My kids love scooters, but it's different than a mobility scooter that you have to have to get around. That's right. That's right. And we're not measuring those differently. So there's a need for data sooner, which is a big ask because there's so much treatment to the data that have to be done in order to be able to compare across the country. We just need more. We need better and more fine uh, tuned data. Where are these happening? I'd love to know what the speed of traffic was at the time of the crash, not what the posted speed limit. I would like to redefine speed-related fatalities to not mean people going beyond the speed limit, but what is the speed? Because right now we're only looking at when people are exceeding the speed limit. 
And speed-related fatalities is a broader issue than that. It's a checkbox, right? It yeah. provides little data, little actually actionable information. Exactly, like right. where where we just need to slow down travel. Right. Uh, and and this is true across the board. When we did uh, repair priorities and looked at whether or not people are actually prioritizing maintenance while calling for more money to fix our crumbling roads and bridges, another one of those phrases that just drives me bananas, is the latest set of data we could find on uh, road conditions when we did our report in 2019 was from 2015. And actually, it wasn't a complete data set. 2014 was the most complete data set. We are spending hundreds of billions of dollars. And we don't have something more recent than five years ago about the state of our roadways. Uh, Just across the board in transportation, we are not collecting basic information that we need in order to determine that the way we're spending our money is appropriate. You just reminded me, I, I, I look at the way we do traffic projections and I'm a huge baseball fan. Like right now I'm wearing my Minnesota Twins Very nice. uh, shirt. I love the whole revolution in analytics and how we're spending millions of dollars every year analyzing spin rates on baseballs and arm you know, angle and all this stuff. And we spend hundreds of billions of dollars a year. We're going to drop a trillion plus dollar transportation bill based on collecting ADT data from a nomadic tube twice a year. It is bizarre to me, the disconnect between the amount we spend and the little bit of data we actually base that off of. Oh, we, we're obsessing over vehicles that can drive themselves and we aren't even counting the number of vehicles or people on the roadway. Amen. You know, it's a, it's this bizarre thing where we get super excited about certain technologies and we just don't deploy what aren't even new technologies. We have better information in our smartphones than we are using within departments of transportation. Yeah. Much more complex, much more nuanced uh, you know, we've been working with the University of Wisconsin and, and the University of Minnesota in u- utilizing GIS, which is not new. It's over 20 years old. It's right. not new right. to be able to better understand how people can move around their community to reach essential essential services and jobs by all modes of travel. And this is considered not only cutting edge, it is considered almost undoable, but in, in spite of the fact we've been doing it for years, by a lot of folks in transportation to use cloud computing and GIS. These are getting old at this point, and it still hasn't been deployed in the field. Yet, we're supposed to trust that they're going to be able to handle AVs. I, it just, I do not understand how we can justify how it can be so popular to spend so much money in a field that we analyze and review so little. When I started in environmental policy and I worked on air quality, the air quality modelers and monitors get together every year and the modelers throw up on the board their graph that shows what they thought was gonna happen with pollution. And the monitor folks get up and show what did happen and they discuss for days the Delta and how to fix their models. This is, Never happened in transportation ever. Never, (laughs) never. It would be absurd to even suggest. That leads me to the question I want to ask you about the the DOT. I was able to meet Pete Buttigieg when he was mayor and go to South Bend and work with him and his team and been very impressed with what he did and what they did as a group in South Bend, particularly on the transportation front. 
I know people like you and me uh, have a certain amount of positive anticipation with him now as the Secretary of Transportation. I, I think there's a lot of reason for hope in that regard. I will just say that there's a certain, I think, built-in pessimism because it feels like the culture of the US DOT is very divorced from the reality that you and I have been discussing. People can't see you nodding your head. How do we reconcile an optimism uh, with what is, I think, a need for a broad culture shift in this institution? It's a very good question. And you're 100% right to be at, at least skeptical, if not out and out cynical about people's opportunity for change. Uh, so I served at USDOT under Ray LaHood uh, and under Anthony Fox uh, during the Obama administration. And we had great intentions and great hope. I will say that most of what I push for now is based on past losses. I learn a lot from losing and I hate losing but I refuse to do the same thing over and over again. One of the criticisms I will make of Democrats is they have infinite confidence in their ability to manage the program to its best advantage. And maybe they are great you know, government leaders and, and administrators, but they are so confident they don't seek changes. They don't they don't ensconce those changes in the law, in the rules, so that it will, they'll get the best possible results when they're there and they can't be rolled back as soon as they leave. Uh, and so very little good that we did was long lasting and we didn't do near enough good while we were there. And we are, we are absolutely set up for that again. It's going to require this new crew at USDOT to make permanent changes. They need to change not only what they say about design guides and things like the uh, manual of uniform traffic control devices permanently, they need to change their own instructions. They need to manage their division staff. Each state has a, an arm of F, uh, federal highways and they implement the program totally differently. USDOT needs to get a handle on that and watch how they control things. They need to change basic requirements they put on the states like uh requiring a 20-year traffic projection, which I guarantee whatever you project is random. Garbage. Don't base expenditures on things we can't possibly know. Uh, there's all those sorts of things that they don't have to wait for legislation for that I am not going to be super excited about them until I see them start doing it. Those things need to be put on the books and made permanent. And that's how they'll change the culture. And then the next thing I'm going to say is I'm very carefully waiting to see what they put out in terms of what they're going to support reauthorization or if there is going to be a stimulus package because if it is a gigantic amount of money for existing programs then you know they're all bluster that you cannot be for improving the economy improving racial justice reducing climate emissions if all you're going to do is put money into the programs that created the problems we're trying to fix not possible so what they put out in terms of that proposal will tell me a whole lot about how excited I should be and how serious I should take them. I have hopes, but I am really holding them in check until I see action. Transportation for America and Smart Growth America have done a lot of work in communities across the country to try to help them implement reform ideas. If I'm a mayor, if I'm a city council member, if I'm a local advocate, what should I be doing right now, even in the absence of state and federal policy reform, to start to address 
some of the, the, the things that you've identified in this Dangerous by Design report? Yeah, uh, we actually have a good amount of funding from the Centers for uh, Disease Control because they're so interested in the public health outcomes of the transportation system to give uh, a support to localities that want to do the right thing, both in the terms of technical assistance, uh, where we go in and we, we're working with a, a handful of states right now who uh, we have three different communities that will do a demonstration project, very temporary, usually just things like paint to see how it changes outcomes in the area. And then they work together as a peer group. Uh, we do direct technical assistance with folks to help them uh, analyze their own procedures and see where they're getting in their own way and give them recommendations about how to change their own rules. And that's mostly through our National Complete Streets Coalition that we do that work. We've also worked with folks to measure uh, both through a, kind of a, a planning lens where you look across the region to see who has good access to the things they need, especially outside of a car. And what are the other outcomes that relates to multimodal access to essential services like fresh food and medical care and retail and schools is actually what's associated with how much money you spend on transportation, how much you drive, uh, how much you emit, how active you are. It's not the job trip that while we obsess on the job trip, that really has very little impact on any of those outcomes. Yeah. And we can go in and we can show where people don't have good access and where that might overlap where the com with where the communities of color are. We can rate particular projects. Uh, we can score it in a way an engineer can actually engineer to which are the projects that are going to make the biggest impact there and where you might be improving some people's accessibility while restricting other people's accessibility to the things they need. So we have a wide array of things that we do with folks. And I think we're most known for our, our advocacy, which we will continue to do and hold people account for making real change to this program. And we invite anyone who either uh, needs help or has had some success in this area to share it with us because if you've done something that works, there's uh, there's thousands of places that want to know more about it and we want to share it with them. We are going to put a link to the Dangerous by Design 2021 report on our website, but I want people listening to know where they can go to get more information from you, plug into the work that you're doing and, and get a copy of this report. What, what's the best way to do that? Well, you can definitely go to either the Smart Growth America website or the Transportation for America website. Smart Growth America is just smartgrowthamerica.org and Transportation for America is T, the number four, america.org. And we have lots of other interesting reports and information that you can use locally. If you don't find what you're looking for, there's lots of contact information on the webpage. You should reach out to us and see if we can find it for you nine times out of 10 we can. Beth, you're a tremendous resource. This has been very fascinating. You're so well-spoken on this stuff and so informed. And I'm just very grateful that you took the opportunity to, to chat with us and, and our audience today. Let's do this again, okay? Let's definitely do this again. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, you're wonderful. All Thank right. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. And thanks for listening. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Take care. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Oh,
is not always open. But if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.